We have all heard how in the late 1400s, Europeans sought new ways to connect to the riches of the East, the spice trade in particular. Those nations furthest west on the continent, Portugal and Spain, had great motivation to finance such explorations. If a way could be found to bypass the middlemen who moved goods from east to west, fortunes could be made. We were taught these things when we learned about Christopher Columbus, a man who was convinced that a brief sail to the west would land the ships entrusted to him by the Spanish in India and make everyone rich. Columbus was wrong, but a much lesser-known rival succeeded where he failed and discovered that route to the east and its wealth. That man was Vasco da Gama. In 1498, he completed the methodical plan started by Henry the Navigator years earlier to try and sail around the African continent and onward to India. Nothing was quite the same after this. Author Nigel Cliff has brought forth this remarkable tale in his book, The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama. Nigel Cliff is a historian, biographer, and critic. He's written for The Economist, The London Times, and The New York Times. His previous book, The Shakespeare Riots, was a finalist for the National Award for Arts Writing. Writing about The Last Crusade, the Publishers Weekly called it a fresh take on the history of the Age of Discovery. Cliff opens new vistas on much-explored territory. This correspondent was interested in the story of Vasco da Gama, given my Portuguese ancestry, but while I'm glad for the education this book has provided me, I was highly disturbed by many of those new vistas this narrative opens up. As such, I'm keen to discuss it with the author who joins us today from London. It's my great pleasure to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Nigel Cliff. Hi, thanks. Good to be with you. Nigel, I'd like to borrow, start out by borrowing a word from Alfred Hitchcock. The MacGuffin, that was a plot device that motivates the characters, and I'd like to apply it to your book. The plot centers on Vasco da Gama, but the MacGuffin is the Crusades. Can you talk a bit about how bitterly divided the Western world was in the 1400s thanks to those religious wars? Yeah, I mean, this is really what I, what the conclusion I came to as I delved deeper into this story, that we sort of underestimated the extent to which these voyages were motivated by religion. Uh, and I really began to see uh, the whole of the Age of Discovery, including Columbus's voyages as a response to the global dominance of the Islamic world for several centuries at this point. I mean, best remember that in the 7th, 8th centuries, Islamic armies had really encircled Europe, taken over most of the lands from the, from the Roman Empire, uh, had marched into Spain, taken most of Spain, uh, and, and, and deep into Paris, into France, ne nearly to Paris as well. Um, and several hundred years later, uh, they still hold, held all of, almost all of those territories. Plus, in 1453, they had taken Constantinople, the greatest Christian city in the world at that time. So this was, this was a live challenge to the very existence of, of Europe as a Christian continent. Uh, and it had been uh, the subject of, of various crusades for four centuries and before Vasco da Gama set sail. Uh, the Crusades never really stopped after the Crusaders who went by land got expelled from the Holy Land. Uh, it's just they weren't so successful. They were called year after year, but with little success. And really, I think what, um, what the Portuguese saw was that if they were to sail around Africa, all halfway around the world, really, to get nearly to the eastern Mediterranean, um, they could accomplish what had, had, uh, had uh, thwarted Europe for so many centuries. Well, I appreciate very much, Nigel, how long you took in the book to explain what led up to the late 1400s, particularly talking about Islam. Uh, Vasco da Gama only steps onto your pages in earnest about page 160. Can we, can we take a few moments yeah, to review right. 
to re- I'd like to, to review the Islamic world of the time, especially, in particular, Iberia's golden age when Muslim, Jew, and Christian lived together in peace. That's right. There certainly was no permanent state of warfare or conflict between the two religions, although, of course, they were natural competitors being geographical neighbors and coming in many ways from, from the same roots. Uh, but uh, there were long periods of flourishing cooperation between Islam and Christianity in, 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 in uh, Muslim Spain, in Christian-ruled Sicily, uh, in many places. So um, I thought it was important, really, to start this story at the beginning um, with the rise of Islam as a global force, um, and to explain before carrying on to the Christian pushback that, in many ways, this was a situation that could have been avoided, that things could have gone a different way. Well, until I read your book, I was unaware of how influential various Christian knights had been in Portugal in this era and how zealous their culture was in wanting to fight and, and kill Muslims. I always thought the Spanish were worse in that department, and, and they probably were, but the, there was a vicious prejudice on both sides of that Spanish-Portuguese border. There sure was. I mean, the, the, the Portuguese became a nation before the Spanish, so they had more time to look around them, and I think that's why they had a head start. Uh, in 1415, as you said, with Henry the Navigator, looked across to Morocco to turn their attention on the, the Muslim state there. Uh, but um, in, in 1492, of course, when Columbus set sail, uh, the Spanish are still expelling the last Muslim state from, from, from uh, what's now Spanish territory. So this was, this, this was a, a, life, a life concern to, to many people and, and, and raised uh, a great deal of, of, um, of division on both sides. And one great motivator in thinking of Europeans then was the need to find Prester John. Can you tell us who he was? Prester John is, I think, emblematic of, of the sort of mysterious East, the fabled rich East uh, with, with its magical powers that, that really drew Europeans to discover Asia for, for many centuries. Uh, Prester John was, was reputed to be an enormously powerful Christian emperor uh, who had somehow lost touch with, with uh, Europe. Um, nevertheless, he had a million soldiers. Uh, he dined with thousands of lords and bishops and kings. Uh, and uh, he was a man who was maybe 300 years old, but had preserved himself exactly at the age of Jesus' crucifixion uh, through the agency of a magic fountain. So this, this, this is really an extraordinary story that, that, that really strains credibility today. But it was thoroughly believed in for much of the Middle Ages, uh, certain popes, and kings, kings of England, kings of France, and popes sent letters, sent envoys to after Prester John to try to track down this great figure. And when the Portuguese, in, 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 nearly in the, 15th, in the 16th century, uh, what we would call the beginning of the Renaissance, the modern age, when they were sailing around the Indian Ocean, looking um, on, on their way to India, at every stop they asked for Prester John, uh, and really, the, the Portuguese expected to find uh, him and other great Christian rulers in the East with huge numbers of Christian subjects with whom to ally uh, and, and possibly push on into the heart of the Islamic world and even to Jerusalem itself. So in a way, there was this, 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 this great draw, this lure um, of, of, of the legend of Prester John. In a way, ignorance uh, rather than known fact that, that drew the Portuguese to India. 
Prince Henry, the navigator, he's celebrated for his efforts to push exploration down that coast of Africa and learn the geography as he went along. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about that effort? It's always a matter of debate to what extent these voyages were driven by greed, by economics, <laughs> by personal ambition, uh, by faith. And I think all of these things are wrapped up in Henry the Navigator. He started off absolutely as a crusading figure. He, he convinced his father, the king, to attack a city in Morocco and, and, and spent a lot of his life in, involved in crusades against Morocco. Uh, at some point, he discovered a taste for, for exploring the oceans. And there's more of a balance there between uh, an opportunist who finds uh, a way to, to enlarge his treasury and a figure who presents himself, certainly to the Pope, as, as this great crusading figure who's looking to push the boundaries of Christianity and roll back uh, the boundaries of Islam. So uh, it, it, he's an enigmatic figure, but he really does, in a way, begin and embody the, this, whole, this whole age of discovery. Well, someone who's not known, uh, as opposed to Henry, uh, that, you, that you talk about, a couple of them, in fact, were some spies about the same era that the Portuguese sent east to see what they could learn, and I guess they gathered some valuable data. Can you talk about them? They did. This is an extraordinary journey that I think deserves to be much better known. These two guys set out from Portugal and traveled to, uh, across the Mediterranean uh, to uh, Alexandria, the great port of Egypt. From there, they set off by land and, and boat uh, to Arabia and then to India, then to Africa. Uh, this was really one of the, the, the great journeys in, in, in history, and uh, they, it was done in disguise. They were disguised as Muslim merchants, as honey salesmen. Uh, somehow they, they managed to, to avoid detection all this way and sent home extremely valuable information. We still, unfortunately, don't know if it ever got home, although the king of Portugal, who had become rather impatient, had sent out uh, two Jews to, uh, to meet these, these, these people, these, these spies, in Cairo, a shoemaker and a rabbi. And certainly this meeting happened, and the shoemaker and the rabbi uh, were sent home uh, with, uh, with this, this, this valuable information about the spice ports of the Indian Ocean and the, the, the destination that uh, the Portuguese would eventually sail for. One of, one of them, unfortunately, died in Cairo, or, or near Cairo, waiting for the other. Um, the second one set off on, on his travels again. He'd obviously developed a taste for these things, uh, and ended up in Ethiopia, where he was looking for Prester John, uh, and became a favorite of the Ethiopian court to such an extent that they wouldn't let him go, and he was found there many years later by another Portuguese envoy, uh, fat, happy, and surrounded by lots of children. <laughs> well, the, the methodical approach of sailing around Africa does pay off in the long run with, with Vasco da Gama, but I just want to briefly mention that it, the, the famous story that when Columbus tried to convince the Portuguese king he could sail west to India, the king's advisors said, no, he's nuts, he's wrong, and, and they surely were correct in that. And the Spanish said the same thing from the beginning. Uh, it was really a sort of last-minute change of heart that that, that uh, enabled Columbus to to sail. Uh, the Portuguese, by by the point Columbus was 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 plying them with 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 his demands for you know substantial rewards for this this what seemed to be a harebrained trip, had had invested many decades and many lives and a great deal of cash in exploring the Atlantic and the uh, east coast, sorry the west coast of Africa, and they were getting near to the Cape of Good Hope. Um, 
just after Columbus took himself to Spain, in fact, uh, Bartholomew Diaz arrived uh, at, or, or sailed past it, rather rather than actually seeing it, but, but, but discovered the whereabouts of the Cape of Good Hope. And that put pay to any interest the Portuguese had in, in Columbus's schemes. So the Portuguese really um, felt that they, they'd got this idea cornered, and they were pretty angry when <laughs> Columbus went off the other way and actually discovered something that seemed quite interesting after all. <laughs> We're speaking with author Nigel Cliff about his most fascinating book, The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama. The Christians wanted to believe, as, we, as you mentioned a moment ago, that there were, that there were uh, fellow Christians in India, and uh, I, I was amused to note that they wanted to believe it so badly that when they got there, they mistook Hindu temples for churches and praying to Krishna as, uh, as praying to Christ. Uh, it shows how ignorant they really were, but wishful thinking. That's right. I mean, it's a, it's a comical story in some ways, but it actually goes to the heart of, of what they were about. I mean, they were looking for Christians, and they were so determined to find them that they really didn't believe the evidence in front of their eyes. They thought these pictures of saints on the temple walls with their teeth baking out and <laughs> their multiple arms were some sort of weird, deviant type of saint, but they were convinced that they were Christian saints nonetheless. And this went on for several years. Uh, someone, someone called Gaspar, someone actually he, he became baptized as Gaspar de Gama. Uh, nothing to do with Vasco da Gama himself. In mm-hmm. fact, was captured by Vasco da Gama and taken home in chains, uh, but ad- adopted his captor's name uh, in Portugal, uh, persuaded the king that India was full of, of, of Christian monarchs <laughs> with thousands of war elephants and troops and uh, vast numbers of Christian subjects, uh, and, and um, he swallowed it. Um, <laughs> obviously, this person was good at self-advancement, but it took them quite a long time to work out that... Christians were very thin on the ground in India. But but an irony of your of your tale, among many, is that there were Christian populations in India. They evidently were founded by Thomas, disciple of Jesus, and and they, those actual Christians, subsequently fall victim of the same religious persecution you talk about in the book, in the guise of the the Inquisition. That's right. I mean, of course, there were Christian communities all over Asia. In fact, it's it's thought that the Indian Christians probably were evangelized by Christian missionaries from, from Persia, from uh, uh, today's Iran. Uh, so, uh, yes, there were. They weren't very many. They might have been about 30,000 or so across uh, this part of southern India. Uh, and and they, were, they were, of course, very excited to, to meet their possible saviors in the form of the Portuguese and their big warships. Uh, but uh, it didn't prove to be the case. Uh, they weren't really of any number to be tactically useful to the Portuguese. And after some time when the Pope was putting pressure on Portugal to live up to its, its promises uh, and convert uh, India to Christianity, which was really what had given the, them the sponsorship of the Pope in the first place, uh, they brought the Inquisition to, to Goa in, in India, and uh, a lot of its victims, sadly, were these Christians who'd been so eager to meet Vasco da Gama in the first place. Your book was originally titled Holy War, and that's just an appropriate title, I'd say, is The Last Crusade, because I think the word jihad would certainly apply to the conflict that erupts in the Indian Ocean between Muslim and Christian once the Portuguese uh, get across the Indian Ocean. Things get very nasty very quickly, and of course, in this case, the the primary jihadists um, initially are the Christians. That's right. I mean, I think The Last Crusade is a bit more specific, because I do see this as essentially the culmination of this whole crusading movement, but it certainly had all of the characteristics of 
of a holy war. Uh, Vasco da Gama, on his first voyage, was was an explorer uh, with not very, very many resources at his at his disposal, probably because very few people thought he would get back home again. But on his second voyage, he was undoubtedly a crusading leader at the head of a fleet of 20 warships with uh, some 1,200 troops. Uh, and his his instructions were really were to uh, cow the recalcitrant Indian ruler, the Zamorin of Calicut, the great port of Calicut, into submission. Um, this, this, this guy had been a thorn in their side for some years, and um, Vasco de Gama went out there in no mood to play around, and the first thing that happened was this extremely gruesome episode in which uh, a ship full of pilgrims uh, on their way home from Mecca were stopped and boarded and sunk, and when it didn't think pursued around the ocean um, with women uh, shaking their babies over the side of, of the boat saying, save my children. Uh, so this was, you could call it in modern terms, I suppose, a terrorist action. It was intended to scare the Indians into submission. Well, when I read that account, I thought, you know, Osama bin Laden's got nothing on some of these guys back then. It was uh, pretty brutal stuff. It was a brutal age. Of course, there had been brutality on both sides, not so much in the Indian Ocean. This was, this was an, an, something that the Portuguese really injected into that realm. And uh, I, I remembered for it, I mean, the, Indian, the Portuguese actually asked the Indians to join in their celebration of the... 500th anniversary of Vasco de Gama's arrival on their shores a few years ago. And, uh, <laughs> How'd that go over? <laughs> it didn't go down too well. I mean, it was. I think the response was somewhere between, you know, incredulity and, and astonishment, but uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, the efforts to reduce the wealth of Muslim traders, which was one of the one of the motivators, uh, does work. Uh, they start suffering, but I had to laugh um, in reading the book about how again and again. We see that money uh, interests seem to trump ideology, and many a Christian state or Muslim state would ally with another against their fellow members of the faith if there was money in it. Sure, and uh, although I, I, I make this strong case for these voyages being essentially driven and uh, made possible by being crusading missions, of course on an individual level and on a national level, uh, greed, desire for for social advancement, for a position, um, for, for, for national wealth was was also uh, a primary factor. And really, when the Portuguese discovered that these huge numbers of allies, of powerful allies they'd been expecting, didn't show up in India, uh, they were a bit adrift as to what to do. The, the, the crusading mission went on for some time and, uh, and drove the Portuguese to... Uh, China to Japan to Indonesia and the Spice Islands, but it really depended on uh, a, a figure being in charge who was willing to uh, behave uh, at the king's on the king's orders. Uh, the king so far away in Portugal that he really had no control over what was going on on the ground. And after a while, um, as it was realised that uh, these people were on their own out there, uh, really personal greed ambition got in the way of of the religious mission that, that Vasco da Gama went out with. Well, your book shows that da Gama he seemed to have a, a lot of lucky turns in the, in the space of a, a fairly remarkably short period of time. Portugal has this very far-flung uh, empire in Asia, and you describe at one point how the booty of one ship captured by the English astounded them with how much value it had on board. 
But uh, the spending for arms was an equally amazing drag on the wealth accumulated, and I guess there's probably some a major lesson in that uh, uh, for us today. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, uh, for just just in, in the terms of Portugal, I mean, a country of a million people trying to trying to supply a world empire. That was an extraordinary thing. It's still extraordinary today that they were the first and essentially the last colonial empire um, really uh, disbanded very recently some of the outposts of, of Portugal. But I think there are great lessons for today. I think, first of all, that uh, this was the beginning of the modern age in, in the sense of the global projection of, of Western power. And um, there are certain things we've forgotten about the way it was projected that um, perhaps haven't been forgotten elsewhere. And uh, instructive for us to remember if we want to if we want to understand how others see us second of course that the uh, to me it's 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 a great warning a warning from history if you like that if you approach another very ancient complex culture with an idea that you can impose your own values on it uh, that you're likely to end up being disappointed and courting disaster well, I, I was struck in, in, in your book that you, you mentioned that Ayman al-Zawahiri, the brains of al-Qaeda, cited uh, Ceuta, the, the Muslim city captured centuries ago, as a place that requires liberation from the West. So after five centuries, that's still a sore point. Uh, apparently, as is as still the conquest of Muslim Spain. Uh, so these events that's, really still... That's right. Yeah. And, of course, when George W. Bush calls this war on terror a crusade, quote-unquote, he, he, he chose a very unfortunate word. He did. And, you know, these, these things uh, are uh, more than sore points. I mean, they're, they're live wounds in, in, in some people's views. I think we, you know, we, as the victors, we, we, in a way, Vasco da Gama succeeded to such an extent, and in a larger way, the Portuguese voyages, which also sent or inspired Columbus on his way, succeeded to such an extent that we've really um, forgotten this story. We see it as some sort of ancient... Con con a contest that was over a long time ago was decided in our favor. But I think now that the world's turning back east again towards India and China, and uh, certainly the, the contest with the Islamic world has become such an important theme again, um, it's, it's an apposite time to revisit this story. Well, Nigel, you, you, you closed the book noting that the religious certainty that drove da Gama and others was also their undoing, and that the holy war they waged was a crazy dream, which I sort of think of as the take-home lesson of your book. But there's a few others. You, you do point out that the Muslims of Cordoba provide um, an alternative, where people living together, Muslim, Jew, Christian, all living together in other faiths, and I guess, uh, well, are you optimistic that we can see more of that in the future, I guess is my final question. I think so, yeah, because I think that... Um, in the end, everybody who sets out to convert another society to their own way of thinking, their own way of living, uh, fails uh, because uh, humans are too recalcitrant for it and uh, different cultures are too ingrained for it. So I think that there's almost an inevitable result that that's not, not going to succeed and that uh, a diverse interaction of cultures is, is going to prevail in the end. Well, my final comment on this is even though um, the Last Crusade describes some horrible behavior by people who are my ancestors, I'm, I'm glad to have learned the facts, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do want to thank you for your efforts. Wow, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Well, Nigel Cliff, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. We want to remind people again that the book is The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama, and we can't recommend it highly enough. Thanks so much.
lover stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sail. 